Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Did you know that home furnishings e-commerce is a $258 billion business? Our retailers are investing in their e-commerce presence and seeing strong cross-channel sales results when doing so. A strong website represents your brand, integrates your inventory in real time, and is a wealth of valuable information for your customers. There isn't a singular, linear path to purchase today, which makes having unified commerce solutions vital to growth. Stores is committed to delivering harmonious retail because it's your whole brand network that drives success. You can visit us on the 10th floor of Building B in the HFA's Retailer Resource Center during the Las Vegas market, or learn more by visiting stores.com today. I'm Caitlin Jazuski. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is Alex Schufert, CEO of Century Furniture and Rockhouse Farm Family of Brands. That's so, yeah. so you are the third generation in the family. Your grandfather started the company. I always am curious in family businesses how you were introduced to the business. Like when, can you remember back to the first time that you knew your family was in the furniture business? Oh, that's a great question. So the first time I knew we were in the business, I, I would have probably been, you know, seven or eight, I'm sure. It would have probably been at school when somebody else told me who our family was and what we did, you know, because, you know, at that age, you just want to run around in the woods and go fishing and, you know, and, and play ball. And, um, and then somebody at school, you know, pulls you aside and says, my, you know, my daddy works for your daddy. <laughs> You're like, well, I, I don't know what my daddy does. He sells furniture. Um, but I remember the first time I realized um, you know, kind of the scale of the business was was sort of early teens. My first summer job uh, when I was uh, 15 was in the furniture factory. I worked one summer in distribution, dropping sofas. Oof, we probably had terrible quality that summer. <laughs> and then the next summer uh, in the case goods plant on the glue line and on the hot press panel. Uh, uh, and, you know, and. And at that point, you kind of appreciated the scale and what all it took to, to make it happen. And you know, I remember driving by one of the factories one day and asking my dad, you know, because he said, well, you know, this is part of our company. And I asked him, you know, which bricks are mine? <laughs> you know, at that young, tender <laughs> yeah, age. Sure. He goes, hey, that's the only concept you have. He said, well, you own a little bit of that. Well, which bricks are mine then? Where's my office? You know, so apparently my office was the distribution facility. For the uh, first summer. Yeah. So, <laughs> but when you started, your grandfather was still that's involved right. in the business, still right? Yep. Okay, so, um, what was it like working for your grandfather? Well, so I never got to work for him. When I came, he had passed away by the time I came back to the company. But uh, yeah, he was uh, he was your prototypical, you know, kind of wild, wild west furniture man, right? Post World War II, uh, consummate salesman, could sell iced Eskimos, as they say, and um, you know, and 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 full of charisma, uh, had an appreciation, I think, for the people that could do the things that he wasn't good at, the operators, the engineers, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, and, and he was pretty dynamic in front of a customer. Um, and then also he demanded excellence. He really wanted a company that made uh, a world-class product. Uh, matter of fact, we, we still quote something that he said, and I'll, I'll butcher it right now, but years ago when, you know, when he was sort of founding the company, that he wanted the company to make him you know, furniture of such impeccable quality that it brought play, you know, a pleasure and, and pride not only to the people that bought it, but to the people that made it, you know, which is that 
flip of sensibility that it's, you know, it, not everybody goes to work every day and, and at the end of the day is proud of what they've done. <laughs> and he wanted a craftsperson, not a uh, manufacturing employee, somebody that truly put craft into the goods. And we've tried to hold true to that for years. Um, you know, and even today you think about, you know, especially in the high-end custom side of the world, you walk into our factories, you, you don't see more than two of something coming down the production line, whether that be the upholstery line or the case goods line. Every item is unique and made to order for a customer, uh, and after it's packed, the next stop is going to be in her house. Um, you know, and I think our people have really um, embraced that. Uh, and they know they're, you know, they're much more um, aligned with, with artisans than they are with just, uh, with just pure, you know, plug-and-play uh, manufacturing. So. so you said when you came back to your, to the company, yeah, right? Yeah. So when you were when you were 11 and 12 or whatever in junior first, your grandfather was still there. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So he was there, and uh, matter of fact, the plant manager at the Case Goods plant that I worked for uh, back then when I was 16. Uh, is still with the company today and works for me now. He's our, our senior vice president of global logistics, and uh, and I, I marvel at the fact that he didn't can me on the second day, <laughs> <laughs> which he should have probably. But uh, he's a great guy, and, and we have a lot of those connections back to uh, you know the the 80s and the 90s and even the 70s. People that have been with us for 30, 40, 50 years. We had an employee retire this year after 52 years. Um, and that's humbling, uh, you know, that's four or five years older than I am, uh, and he's worked at the company that long, and, you know, and the amount of change that he's seen, and, uh, and you know, and, and the amount of history that's gone, you know, uh, past him on that production line is, is pretty, pretty shocking. Humbling for me, it's the old reminder of third generation not to mess it up. <laughs> you, know, isn't, you know that old saying, oh, right? I live it every day, yeah. you know, it's the, you know, uh, I think good business people are always a little bit paranoid, right? Um, you know, at the point when you start to believe, my granddad had another saying, you know, don't, don't read your own press clippings. You know, once, once you start to believe what they say about you, whether it's good or bad, then you're probably going to make some bad decisions to compensate for it. So stick to your knitting, do what you think is right, and, you know, it tends to work out in the end. Now, when you were growing up, was furniture very much a part of family gatherings and conversation? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, we used to have, uh, and the family was, was diversified. So we were in, when I was young, we were in furniture, textiles, um, adhesive tape, and a number of different uh, businesses. Um, you know, and so we would have shareholder meetings and the family would come together and, and each of the companies would present and then we'd have little family gatherings afterwards. Um, but then my, my specific family, my sisters and, and my parents and I, every family vacation nowadays, you know, and for the last 15 years has, you know, has revolved around discussing the company and what's going on at the company. Matter of fact, our spouses have had to pull us aside and say that on family vacations, we would like to have some periods of time where we don't talk about Century and the furniture industry. <laughs> so we've had to acquiesce there a little bit. Um, but it becomes your passion and your hobby as well as your job. And, you know, it's hard to not fall back into that comfortable zone of figuring out how to make it survive and, you know, make it thrive. Well, when you grow up in a business like that, I would think the, the dividing line between personal life and professional life becomes a Very little blurry. blurred. Very blurry. Um, you know, and, and I think the happiest people in business are the ones that have, as they say, figured out how to make their, their passion or their hobby their job. And in a furniture uh, business like ours, in a family-owned furniture business, you know, the, I think you get there pretty quick or you get out. 
Um, you know, because you can be pretty unhappy if you don't love what you're doing, but your name's on the door. Um, you know, and, and so we've, we've seen that line blur quite a bit. Uh, my sister runs all of our, our advertising, our marketing. My middle sister, my youngest sister is married to our CFO. Uh, my older sister's husband worked for us for a number of years before he set out on his own uh, and started a new company. So we, you know, we have it in, in spades and my dad and I, it's our go-to topic of conversation, right? It's what he did for 45 years and it's what I've done for 25 years. And, you know, so left to our own devices within five minutes, we're talking about upholstery again, <laughs> you know, and cushion compression and, and how to get the puckers out of, uh, you know, the bottom of a, of a skirtless sofa. So it's, uh, but it's fun. We, we love it from that standpoint. And, uh, you know, mainly because of the people that are around us. Um, you know, we, we talk about this at the company a lot that, you know, we've got about 900 people at Century and about 2,000 people at, at Rockhouse Farms. Uh, in a bunch of buildings, we got nine or ten buildings that are worthless without the people in them. You know, red brick buildings in this area are really cheap, uh, but really good loyal craftspeople are awful hard to find. So when you when you walk through one of the buildings, you look around, everybody's, "Wow, that machine's expensive, and this building's really nice." And see, they all are worthless. You know, machine. You know, in the secondhand market, is worth ten cents on the dollar. You see, the people standing around that machine, they're invaluable. So, and I think the companies that are successful over a long period of time really keep that in mind. Was that something that you learned growing up from your grandfather and your father? Yeah, I, th I think that was really part of the, the family culture. You know, a business has a culture and a family, everybody's family also has a culture. And, and our culture and the Schufer family was always one of humility, um, appreciation for the fact that we didn't get here without an awful lot of people standing beside us and standing behind us, helping us, us move forward. Um, and that the decisions we made and the mistakes we made also impacted those people. Um, and so, you know, that, that we should, you know, we should appreciate every day for, for what our teams are doing for each other, but also for the family, but also remember that when we make a decision, it, it impacts people's lives and, and it, either positively or negatively, and, and we shouldn't take any of those lightly. Um, I was in business before I came back to the family business out in California. Um, during the dot-com boom and then during the dot-com bust, the original one, <laughs> the pets.com explosion. Um, and I was in the textile and furniture business out there. And when that entire uh, generation one internet world blew up, I had a lot of employees and a lot of stores that all of a sudden uh, didn't make financial sense. Uh, and I probably held on to them longer than I should have, trying to make it work. Um, you know, and I probably developed an ulcer to as I was having to downsize that business and sit down with people where I was impacting their lives because I couldn't make my business succeed well enough to keep them employed. Um, and, you know, I, I still carry some of those scars today that, you know, the responsibility is certainly to the consumer to deliver on, on their uh, vision of their home, to make them delighted with the product they get. But the responsibility is also to our employees and, and our team members, you know, because their livelihoods depend on us making decisions that keep the business vibrant. You know, and, and at the, the point it's not, you know, I feel it very squarely that that falls back to me. You know, if it if it messes up, there's one place where that responsibility lands. So it's a big responsibility. 
Yeah, it's uh, I, try, I can't try to keep it to, from driving me to drink, but <laughs> <laughs> can't keep the ulcers away. Then. That's right. That's right. Was it always a plan for you to work for a period outside the family business? Was that part of? Because I've heard yeah. other companies, right? It's a requirement that it you work. Is. So it was. Um, it was sort of understood law within the family business that um, that you had to go somewhere else for a couple of years before you could come back to the family company. Um, and you know across all branches of the family um, and you know the family there were four primary branches my grandfather had four children um, and and those branches are still involved in various parts of the business um, but as all those grandchildren there were 13 of us came back in and, and started expressing an interest in different ways um, we each had to go out and get experience oh, you know, one way of thinking about it is get experience on somebody else's payroll. <laughs> get your bad habits out of the way somewhere else. But, the, but I do think there was, um, you know, an understanding that you needed visibility across a broader spectrum of business topics than just falling in place in, a, in this um, company. Because then you would bring more value back inside. You'd bring more perspective back inside and, and hopefully some appreciation. And, uh, and it worked out pretty well, and we, we try to, and we'll see, the next generation, uh, uh, my children and my sister's children are just now starting to get to the age. Um, and I think it's a fabulous rule. I think, um, I think A, it keeps that uh, kid, that young adult, from falling into the trap of, uh, of taking the job because they think they have to and then getting stuck in it unhappily. You know, once you have the opportunity to go somewhere else for a couple of years, you may realize that, you know, there's a different industry or a different um, uh, career path that that's, speaks to you more. Um, and then when you make the choice to come back, you're choosing, you know, of your own volition, even though you've made a way for yourself to come back. Um, and I think you're probably then carrying less baggage and certainly more valuable to the company. So I think we'll try to hold that same rule in place. And, and so rule. what are the ages now? How far are they? Our, uh, we have a couple in college at this point. Um, so we've got a 20, soon to be 21 year old, um, soon to be 19 year old, and then uh, 15, 13, a bunch in that 13 to 10 range. And, um, and we've had a couple of them intern. Matter of fact, uh, my niece interned at Century this summer uh, and was a delight to have her out. Um, and so we're, we're hopeful. Uh, we don't, it's not ex uh, expected or required, but it'd be great if a couple of them expressed an interest. Um, you know, I think uh, multi-generational companies are, uh, you know, are, are sort of something to be cherished in this country. Um, it's, um, it's very rare that something makes it past the second generation any longer. And partly, I think it's because, you know, uh, as each generation comes along, there's a growing weight to, you don't want to be the one to mess it up, <laughs> which I was uh, very conscious of when, when I came back to the company. And the longer the hitting streak goes, right? That's exactly right. You know, it's like, man, don't be the one to miss the free throw. Good right. Lord, we, you know, we're 32 for 32 for this game. We'll get <laughs> an NBA record. So, but yeah, we're, we're excited about, um, we have great, uh, bright young children coming along and, um, and if it works out, wonderful. And if not, we have wonderful uh, you know, young executives at the company that can take the mantle up when, when I'm you know, not able to make good decisions anymore, which hopefully one of them will tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're still relatively young in, in yeah. furniture industry terms. As I say, in furniture, you cut them through and, and measure the fire rings. <laughs> you don't look that old, but you've probably been through a lot of forest fires. But, uh, but yeah, I think uh, I've got a few more years at least uh, before I mess it up too bad. 
So the company has evolved quite a bit, mm -hmm. not just before you getting there, but even in, in the time that you've been there. How have you kind of helped shape that? I mean, how? Yeah, it's an interesting um, story. So we, when we bought, uh, recently, my immediate family bought the furniture company away from the more extended family. Um, you know, we were all active in the furniture side of the business. We really saw a, a future there, and we, you know, we, we had a passion for it. So, um, and the wonderful thing about the more extended family is that when they see that, they, they're very supportive of that effort. You know, great, y'all have a passion in this. You know, make a fair price, and we'll make this happen. We'll help make this happen. But at the point in time that I convinced my siblings and my and my mother and father to go along with this idea. Uh, my, my concept was that there will be multiple companies in our same position that are, that are, f that are great privately held firms and that are facing generational steps uh, and where there may not be a next generation that's interested and we should put ourselves in a position um, to be a, a purchaser, uh, you know, a partner to those companies because I feared in the furniture industry uh, that it would become an issue if you didn't have scale that the cost of doing business in the United States from a regulatory standpoint, uh, from a technological standpoint, et cetera, continues to ramp up and that you need to be able to amortize those costs over a fairly broad revenue base. And while we weren't a small company, we were by no means a large company. Um, you know, and, and so one of the concepts was, if you will, let's roll up a few like-minded companies to achieve some scale if they have a culture that fits our culture. And, and I actually made a list of companies that I thought would be a, a good list of companies for us to approach when we were ready. Uh, I had, I think, 10, 11, 12 names on the list, and, uh, and I'd presented to them, said these are the, the types of companies that I think we should be interested in when we're ready. And before we were ready, uh, Jack Glasheen, Jimmy Moore, and, and Tim Rogers approached us and said, hey, uh, you have a culture very similar to ours, and we think we might be interested in talking to you about buying Hancock and Moore. And, and it was probably a year before we were really comfortable and ready, but it was the number one name on my list. <laughs> so sometimes when, when the perfect person shows up, even if you're not ready, you just gotta say yes. And, and so we were able to put that deal together. And, and, and frankly, they were really looking for another privately held entity to partner with that would take care of their people. Um, and we had that, Jack and I had that conversation uh, a couple of times that, you know, you could probably go out and get a little bit more money for your company if you went and sought out private equity and, you know, or, or sought out other forms of financing that were not industry people like us. And he said, yeah, Alex, I know, but I want our people to be with someone we can trust and feel good about, um, that they um, have spent 35 years helping me build this company, and I owe it to them to, to put them with somebody that will continue that legacy and, and I was really flattered and humbled and we were able to do the deal because we were we didn't have there was no broker in the deal it was you know we didn't have any outside party it was you know we shook hands and said let's figure it out and we figured it out and that was a fabulous place to land uh, and then a couple of years passed and and we were fortunate enough to be able to step in and um, and help save one of the iconic names in the industry with Hickory Chair and and the same thing, they have um, a fabulous culture and a great group of people working there, 500 really loyal uh, production um, craftspeople and, and management individuals, and, and, they were, and they were in a tough position by no, uh, no fault of their own, just by association. And, 
um, and we got involved. We really didn't think we would be successful, but um, they were another one of those names that was on my list of 12. <laughs> I was going to ask that question. You <laughs> so you have to kind of sit there and go, geez, you know, we really, um, I know the timing's not right again, but, and, and we just, we got lucky. Um, sometimes, you know, as, as the old saying, you put yourself in the way of luck and sometimes it hits you. Uh, and we put ourselves in a good spot, um, but we certainly got lucky. And, and I'd say it to, you know, to any Harvard business uh, professor that, you know, that said, hey, y'all done a good job. I said, nah, we, we've just made, you know, lucky decisions more often than we've made unlucky decisions. We, you know, um, we stick with it longer than a lot of other people do. Uh, I don't know. I think luck is the result of good preparation. You know, you're kind. You're kind. It's, uh, it's certainly something to be said for the last man standing strategy. <laughs> if you can, durability is a really wonderful trait in business. If you can create yourself to be durable, then a lot of times just outlasting what's happening in the marketplace can be a good enough strategy. Um, and we, we've built ourselves to be durable with people that, that are, you know, can endure uh, the tough times, you know, because they, they're cyclical. This is a cyclical industry and, you know, and, and that's another part of that uh, saying that my granddad had, not to read your own press clippings, is you don't think you're really smart when the, when the economy's great and everything's humming. You know, you weren't really smart then, and you're not an idiot when it falls apart, right? You were, you're making the same kinds of decisions, but don't build your business so that it falls apart when the, when the economy is tough. Did you know that Home Furnishings e-commerce is a $258 billion business? Our retailers are investing in their e-commerce presence and seeing strong cross-channel sales results when doing so. A strong website represents your brand, integrates your inventory in real time, and is a wealth of valuable information for your customers. There isn't a singular, linear path to purchase today, which makes having unified commerce solutions vital to growth. Stores is committed to delivering harmonious retail because it's your whole brand network that drives success. You can visit us on the 10th floor of Building B in the HFA's Retailer Resource Center during the Las Vegas market, or learn more by visiting stores.com today. I'm Caitlin Jaszewski. Thanks for listening. Now, Hickory Chair was part of a larger entity, right. and we could probably spend all day dissecting that, and that's a whole other series of Books podcasts. can be written. <laughs> and, and likely will be. They should be. Yeah. Um, but... One of the challenges that the company they came from had was differentiating a whole series of fairly similar brands. You now find yourself in the position of having right. several brands that overlap in certain segments, that Absolutely. compete in some way. Um, tell me how you are managing that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we have kept kind of a little crib sheet of things done by our predecessors in our old competitors' business, those conglomerates that we should never repeat, <laughs> that have proven themselves not to be successful. And top of the list is exactly that, the homogenization of those brands that, that, that were under their stewardship. And, and one of the things I think outside management and outside money tends to see when they look inside the furniture industry is they see waste in the form of duplicated executives and duplicated creative talent and duplicated manufacturing talent and they see layers that they can cut out because they've got two brands that are very similar and if we just have them merchandised by the same person, if we just have it run by the same person. Um, and we, we come, my family and, and I in particular, come from a very different point of view um, where I feel the strength of a company 
uh, in the marketplace is really driven by the personalities of the people that set the edge of the company. You know, the, again, if you go back to if you're a big believer in people, then you believe in the, the force of will that you know those leaders um, have and and the sort of direction that they can set. And and so I've actively kept management teams separate, um, and to the point where when I go talk to the different product teams and sales teams for each of the major brands, you know, my, my speech usually begins with, I want y'all to do everything you can this market or this week or during this sales period to take as much business from, insert here the name of one of our other owned brands. Like Century, you should be after Hickory Chair's business every day of the week this week. And by the way, they're gonna be after yours and I'm walking out of here and having a sales meeting with them and telling them the same thing. I want y'all fighting. And in a family, if you think about a family dynamic, and I come from you know, a family with four children, you know, three siblings in it, families are fighting all the time. You know, they're, they're constantly skirmishing and scuffling and throwing elbows until somebody that's not in the family walks in the room. Then they stop fighting and they all fight with the outsider. But the fighting internally keeps them sharp. You know, it helps them you know, become you know, more complete, well-rounded individuals in some ways, to be able to converse, to be able to defend themselves, to be able to stand up for themselves. And, and uh, you know, that same dynamic in our business, in our little mini conglomerate is, I want our brands fighting with each other all the time. I want them trying to take each other's business. I want them trying to out-innovate and out-maneuver each other. I, and then, when they've got all they can possibly get for themselves, if there's a jump ball and they can't consume it, well then fine, help, help a sister company out. But, um, and I think that, uh, that ability to keep ourselves sharp by honing ourselves on each other um, will set us up to be at least different than our predecessors that tried this. Um, maybe our effort will fail. <laughs> Time will tell, the ticker tape will tell. But, uh, but right now it really, I think it keeps our team nimble. And plus there's an esprit de corps at each brand. Hickory chair people are hickory chair people. They don't want to be, you know, matter of fact, we, we have to laugh when we, when we named our company RHF, it stood for Rockhouse Farms, but we were obviously following a company that had HHG and one that before that was, you know, FBN. Mm -hmm. And it dawned on me that three letter acronyms were maybe not good luck. <laughs> so we fleshed it out to the full name to say Rockhouse Farm real quick and said, you don't work for a three letter acronym, <laughs> please. Um, because hickory chair people are hickory chair people, and if you were trying to make them HHG people, they were going to resist that. They didn't want to be that. And if you forced it by taking away their leadership and homogenizing them, then you lose the esprit de corps and that teamwork and that sense of family where, you know, at the end of the day, that's the extra 10% of effort you get because you do it for your family. You don't do it for, you know, a three-letter acronym. You know, the reason the, the people in a Century factory work a little bit harder and try a little bit harder is because they're standing next to Century people they don't want to let down, you know, and, and Hancock people the same way and Jessica people the same way. And, and we want to keep that, you know, we all play for, you know, uh, the NBA, you know, but they're the Lakers and you're the Knicks and, you know, yeah, yeah, we're all a league. We're together as a league and we want the league to succeed, but you want the Knicks to win, you know, and I want the Hornets to win, you know. How do you balance that? Because if you look at the history of the furniture business, mm -hmm. the flip side of that is internal fighting, jockeying for position, undermining somebody to get. Uh, I mean, I don't yeah. know. I, I mean, one of the books, if you've ever read Michael Dugan's Furniture oh, sure, Wars, sure. There's, there's a number of examples in there sure. of where the reverse. So how do you balance? No, that's a great point. And I think um, the place where our brands would have the potential 
to um, squabble or undermine each other in the future would be around capital allocation, right? Um, you know, so each has their own factory at this point, or factories at this point, and they each have their own marketing team and budget and product team and budget, and et cetera. But you know, at the, at, you know, the beginning of every year, we set CapEx budgets. So who's getting the next five-axis router? Who's getting the next you know, uh, CNC fabric cutting machine, et cetera? You know, and, and so what we've done so far is, is we've set CapEx budgets based on sales and profit success. So, you, you know, you, you get to eat what you kill. Nice. <laughs> you know, that's the law of the jungle. Um, you know, but we'll see what that looks like during a downturn. It'll be uh, incumbent on us as, as shareholders and board members to continue with that, you know, um, that way of managing so that it's fair. And, and frankly, fam our, you know, family businesses get there. Yeah. I think any conglomerate where there's uh, a disproportionate amount of consumption of available capital. You know, so if you've got you know, whatever your numbers are, if you're a million dollar company and you've got $10,000 to spend on new investments this year, or you're you know, a hundred million dollar company with 10 million to spend, deciding where that capital goes you're really choosing among your children of who's the greater of equals, right? You know, and if, if one year, uh, you know, Hancock and Moore gets all the capital, uh, you know, for investment in new plant and equipment and et cetera, then the guys over a century are gonna look at me cross-eyed and, you know, and wonder why, you know, dad says he loves us both, but he seems to love them more this year. Um, and so managing that's uh, uh, something to be very careful about. Uh, the other thing that I think can happen is you scale up and become too much of you know, a conglomerate, if you will, um, is believing, you know, business leaders tend to believe that they can control everything, you know, especially business leaders like me that have come from small business and, and, and then you've grown. And you've got to get to that point where command and control doesn't work beyond a certain scale. <laughs> you know, you can't dictate from on high because you're not close enough to what's happening down in the, in the trenches, you know, from a sales standpoint, a product standpoint, you know, um, or, or a production standpoint. Um, you know, I can't make one walk through somebody's factory and then tell them what they're doing wrong with quality or delivery. I can't, you know, sit in one product merchandising meeting and tell them that, you know, your problem is you don't have the right sofas and chairs. Um, you've got to trust those individuals you hire, and then you've got to give them metrics and give them incentives that say, man, if you, if you knock it out of the park, you and your team are going to really be rewarded. And we have a clear and easy to understand scorecard. I know when you're speeding or when you're running the engine in the red. <laughs> you know, don't game it. Um, you know, but but it's back to having strong leadership. At the you know, and I, I hate to to pick on old competitors, but um, I made this statement to somebody recently. In the last couple of years, I couldn't tell you who the president of Henry Don was. And if you know, there's a little lesson there. If you go for multiple years without me being able to tell you who's running the company it's probably not going to be a company for very long. You know, it, it really, you know, having teams that live it and breathe it and that become synonymous with it uh, is critical in this industry. Um, you know, and, and, and I think maybe some of our prior and, and no longer around competitors forgot that. Uh, they read the business case of here's how you cut SG&A out of the company um, and it works for about a year. And you look at the results and say, ah, oh, we're brilliant. And then the next year rolls around and things start falling apart. So especially the furniture, furniture industry is a relationship business. You know, you, you, you want to do business with the retail base that, that keeps us all alive. You got to fly out there, shake their hand and have a conversation with them. Um, you know, they got lots of choices. And if you don't have somebody that can do that, flying out there, shaking their hand, making a deal, 
then pretty soon the four other people standing in the line that do have those guys are going to have your floor placements. So. You talked about starting in a small business and now mm. growing it and scaling it. You also talked about the necessity to scale. Yeah. How have you adapted your own management style? And, and you alluded to a little, a little bit of it, yeah. but to what extent was that a conscious effort? What did you study? What did you think about? What were the issues that you wrestled with? Did you sit and have a plan to say, okay, well, well now this size, I have to change, I have to delegate this, I have to add a layer. I mean, what was that process? Yeah, I, um, I wish it was more uh, organized and linear than it, than it was. A lot of it's trial and error. Um, you know, my, I, at the point we started to add on large and complex additions to the company, um, you know, it, it became very obvious very quickly to me that you know, I was not going to be able to physically be in every place that the organization in the past expected me to be. Um, and it, that leap of faith is really trusting some others to make decisions. And I'm, I'm a micromanager, uh, probably extraordinaire. My people would probably say as much. And so, you know, from a, a very sort of tactical, low-level standpoint, I started purposely skipping meetings. <laughs> Um, and, you know, because a lot of times, and I think uh, strong-willed leaders forget this, that if you say, oh, I'll go to the meeting and I'll be quiet, well, you can't keep yourself quiet. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like somebody addicted to caffeine saying, well, I'm, I'm just going to go into Starbucks to just get the smell. You know, you're walking out with a cup of coffee. Um, and then also when that individual's in the meeting, the other attendees of that meeting will tend to look and defer. You know, it just becomes a gravity well. Um, so consciously trying to you know, um, schedule myself not in the meeting where I know, where maybe I even believe I could add value, where, where a decision may come out of it that might be different than what I would have made, but then living with that decision and you know, trying to do a little bit more coaching. Um, and, and then I think a big part of it was understanding from a framework standpoint that my, my role was really um, almost a business SWAT team or triage team. Um, that you know, once you get to a certain size, you've got to have enough people at, in the management ranks that have some free capacity to jump into a crisis and help. You know, uh, and that crisis may be any of a number of things. It may be, you know, you've had some staff that have chosen to, to leave the company to go to a competitor, and all of a sudden they don't have a sales manager, or we're lacking somebody on the, the purchasing logistics side. So having enough capacity around, and then you, I think companies go, well, you, we, can't, we don't have enough, you know, we don't have margin to have wasted capacity on the SGA and on the payroll. It's amazing smart people will always fill up that capacity with a good project that pays back. You know, capable people won't sit around if you say, well, I want somebody that, that really has, you know, a 35-hour-a-week job, and normally we expect executives to work 50, and, you know, those extra 15 hours, I'm paying for nothing. Well, you know, that, a good A-level employee is going to do something good for you with that 15 hours. They're going to get themselves involved in some different areas. But when the crisis hits, when you really need them to pull back and jump into the hot spot, they've got those 15 hours, that project can be put on hold. It's not a mission critical. They can then take that free capacity and jump in. So working to build a team that had some of that, and we've been active uh, on that front over the last 12 to 18 months, we really want three, four, five people that are high-level thinkers, that are multidiscipline trained, that can jump in and assist. And a lot of times it's not, you know, maybe you're getting into that crisis before it's a full-blown forest fire. Sure. You know, we want to be in when it's just a, it's a little hot spot so we can help 
the person who's running that entity, that plant, that whatever, make sure that you know what could have gone to a, a you know a hundred unit problem only goes to a twenty unit problem, and, and then goes back down to its ten, its norm. Yeah, and we've been reasonably decent at that. We've also, like any industry, uh, especially the furniture one, seems to be acute in this problem. We've got lots of of uh, retirees at this point, lots of older, you know, the, the industry tends to move in generations, and we're a little bit m more capable of handling those retirements without it causing a lot of disruption. And, and building durable companies, you, you've got to have that backup and redundancy too, so. Um, that's is that at a corporate level that you have that triage team, or is right. that within each of the brands? Corporate level, yeah. So we, we've got, um, we feel like are a couple of, and, and I try to include myself in that some days, um, a, a couple of higher um, level corporate people that, you know, can jump in from an accounting standpoint or an operational standpoint or, you know, a sales and marketing standpoint and provide the assist or in, you know, in a true crisis if we were to lose somebody, jump in and, and run that ship for a while until we're able to backfill and, and move back up. And, um, and then the other thing we've done over the years is we, put a, we place a really high value on furniture people, um, you know, not uh, generic outside managers, no, no knock on them, but it takes them years to learn us. Um, and somebody that comes in with furniture, you know, terminology and knowledge, um, you know, and so when you go through our ranks uh, at the executive level, you know, um, from accounting all the way through, and these are people that have you know decades of furniture uh, accounting experience, <laughs> furniture manufacturing experience, and furniture merchandising, sales, and marketing experience. Um, you know, and we do a lot of promoting from within, um, and we've we've had a nice pipeline, especially on the operations side, to be able to refill um, in areas of retirement or turnover. Um, but I think that's another place where uh, some competitors in the past have valued. Um, general business credentials and high-level pedigree over the grassroots knowledge of furniture. Uh, and it's just a funny business. There's, there are a lot of people that have come in uh, outside money uh, that have looked at it and said, it's, it's a wasteful, silly business and we can really show these guys how to do it. And then three, four, or five years later, they leave with half the money they had and shaking their head and say, furniture's a horrible business. <laughs> well, it's not a horrible business, but it's, it's tough. Um, it, you gotta. You really have to have religion to stick with it. You really do. Yeah. My guest this week is Alex Shuford. What do you do to relax? What do you do to take the pressure off? <laughs> uh, so I've got two daughters, uh, 15 and 13, uh, and a lovely wife. And we spend uh, most of the time, if I have free time, I'm with them uh, because I, I invest a lot of my hours in the business and I don't feel like it's fair to them when I have a few free ones after work to not invest it back into them. Um, but we do all kinds of things. I, uh, I do a little bit of mountain biking. Um, you know, I'm a bit of a fisherman if I ever find, if I force myself to find the time. Um, but really what I do to relax is I've got a nice big backyard with a swing hanging from a tree that's got a little tiny view of the mountains. And I'll sit there and swing <laughs> for 20, 30 minutes after I get home, 6.30 at night or whatever it is. And, and, and the girls know to kind of leave, let's leave dad alone in the yard for a little bit. And um, I grew up on a farm uh, surrounded by acreage and horses and cows. And I think it's, you know, you can take the farm boy off the farm, but you can't really ever take the farm out of the farm boy. 
um, you know, being able to just sit outside and see a long expanse of natural you know, growth. Uh, and, um, but yeah, we, uh, I travel a decent amount. Um, it's funny, people that travel a lot for business sometimes don't want to travel as much for pleasure. Um, but we'll do a trip here and there. And, um, Favorite place? Ooh, that's a really tough one. Um, so you thought that the business questions yeah. would be hard. Yeah, so favorite place. So when I was uh, in college, I took effectively a year off of college and traveled around the world. Um, and I got to go to New Zealand. I was, a, I mean, I was the consummate backpacking teenager. Um, I turned 21 in Australia where the drinking age was 18, so it was kind of a letdown. Um, <laughs> But I spent about two weeks in New Zealand backpacking around New Zealand and was just mesmerized. It was just beautiful, both from a landscape and topography standpoints, what you, you know, it's obviously what you've seen in Lord of the Rings, but, but even more so, the people were delightful. So all the kids in New Zealand of my age at the time, in their teens and, and 20s, they all head out around the world and travel, backpack around the world. And all their parents are still in New Zealand with their kids out backpacking, and they know this. So when you come, they take care of you because they wish somebody is taking care of their kids when they're in Europe or in America. And, you know, almost like they have this little reciprocal village mindset that, you know, when kids come, treat them like you would want your kids to be treated in Germany or wherever they are right now. Um, and so you put your thumb out, the first car will stop and pick you up every time. You know, and then they're going to invite you to dinner, and then they're going to make sure you sure you don't want to stay at our house tonight. You want to sleep in, and as an American, it felt a little eerie. <laughs> it's like, well, no, hang on, stalker people. I don't <laughs> right, think I yeah, want to stay in the house. But, but after a while, you started to realize it's just who they were. They're just really kind, welcoming, open-armed people. So that that's probably top of the list. I've not been back since. Um, you know, and you know, and I've been to a couple other places that you know, were pretty amazing. Um, one that was a fishing trip I'll mention. We went to uh, the far eastern side of Russia to go fly fishing. Well, a couple of friends of mine who I've stayed in touch with over the years to a place called Kamchatka, which is, um, as they, they told us, um, was kind of like Alaska was 50 years ago. So we all, as a, in, in continental Americans, we think of Alaska as the frontier, right? Right. Well, these Russians think of Alaska as continental America, <laughs> and it's true. Uh, there was one flight per week to get there, and then we landed in an old Russian military base airfield practically, and then they had about a 70-year-old, well, 60-year-old helicopter from the 50s that you got in, and it flew you another 30 miles out into the middle of nowhere, and it was beautiful. I mean, stunning. Uh, beautiful river, the accommodations were very rustic, but you woke up every morning and went, this must have been what it was like when Lewis and Clark were heading over the you know, Rockies and looking out across you know, the great Pacific Northwest. Um, and that was pretty awe-inspiring. You don't get to see just pure, undeveloped expanses like that. Um, and the fishing wasn't bad either, which you know, was nice icing on the cake. There you go. Yeah. Well, well, I think now that we've taken you to your happy place, ah, that's, right, that's a good place to let you go. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. Well, we, we've had people say they, they walk away enjoying the podcast yeah, and have a good fabulous. time. So thanks yeah, so much. It's been a lot of fun. My guest has been Alex Schufert. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it.